For August 23rd, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 686. A film with documents. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. They are Matt and Pete, and I'm Matt, and that's Pete. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing all right, all things considered, you know? It's a, <laughs> all yep. things considered. Big uh, big week big week in the Northeast. I hope, uh, you know, everyone is um, is uh, safe in the, the storms, and it's a hell of a thing. And uh, yeah. glad you glad you are able to join this, uh, this podcast, despite uh, it being rather wet outside. So far, so good. It hasn't been too bad. We will see what happens. Knock on wood. So uh, it's it ain't over until the it ain't over till Val Kilmer sings. Till Val, I, I, uh, <laughs> and Val Kilmer sang so much in the Doors, and uh, yes. playing playing Jim Jim Morrison. Um, hey, uh, so we're talking about Val this yes. week about uh, Val, which is a documentary um, featuring archival footage shot by the actor. Val Kilmer. And apparently he is like, he had a video camera. Uh, he he, what he said was like, he was the first person, um, he knew with a video camera and, and, uh, used to make videos when well, they weren't videos, they were films. They were like eight millimeter films, I suppose, in the early days at home with his brothers. Um, uh, one of whom, uh, died, uh, young. And, um, they, uh, they would make these films in the, the, like their backyard or like in, in places around town. And they lived in, in Chatsworth. Now, Pete, to get to Chatsworth. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I would take from here. So okay. I, I could do two things. I could either go north to the 10 and then take the 10 to the 405, or I could just go east to the 405, take right. the 405 past the 101. And just remember, it's not U.S. Highway 101. It's the 101. The. Right. 101. And, right. uh, it's just a little, you kind of gotta then zigzag through the grid a little bit because it is north, uh, northwest of there and there's no road that goes diagonally sort of straight to it. That's how you get to, that's how you get to, uh, to Chatsworth where, where Val Kilmer was born. And so there's, well, there's all that's this. How you, that's how you get there physically, right? How do you get there spiritually? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that Chatsworth means a different thing now than it did when Val Kilmer was, uh, uh, was growing up there because it's, it's that whole valley, you know, in the, the 60 years of his life, his 61 or something like that years of his life has been developed. Uh, and so the, the sort of like, it looks very rustic, doesn't it? In those old films, mm. it looks like there's a lot of just undeveloped land that's just sort of like hills and scrub, uh, vegetation and like you know um this this kind of natural la natural la landscape which is this particular kind of desert that, that we are here and uh now it's all you know it's it's all a grid of of houses you know and uh, warehouses industrial stuff row upon row upon row completely developed but like this is where the orange groves used to be <laughs> You know, back in the days of uh, Chinatown or, you know, rather later in the days of, of Val Kilmer's childhood, he says in the film, I'm the first person I knew that had uh, had a video camera. And from from his earliest childhood, from like his early from his like first school play or something like that, where he speaks with a hilarious German accent uh, about the science and about the discoveries that they are doing this uh 
this uh, Doctor Strangelove-esque accent as a like as a young boy um, through to movie sets where he was just carting a, a video camera around and um, and uh, t- you know taking taking pictures to the present day where you presume he's doing it on his phone or whatever. Uh, he is credited as the cinematographer of this, uh, of this film. And so uh, two filmmakers whose names are uh, their names are, Oh goodness. I had, I just had this up on the, <laughs> I just Ting Poo and Leo Scott, Leo Scott and Ting Poo uh, yes. are, um, directed edited and also with Falcomer produced this film so there are there are there's like an outside perspective is the point that i wanted to uh that i wanted to to make like there are there are like there is this external perspective like organizing this footage and uh also shooting some new stuff because he he appears on camera you know in in stuff that he didn't he didn't shoot himself and um and this film is um this film is is i i mean i think that what it is is very straightforward and uh you know just just open and shut you know uh easy to understand Right, and pres- you're, you're joking, right? Yes, I'm joking completely. <laughs> this is a this is a confounding work of film of like uh, art film, um, you know, of, of film art. I guess. Right, it is it is film art. It is a film art art film, and yes. uh, and it's it's rather confounding. Anyway, with my sort of halting description of it, there it's a it's a sort of self shot. A lot of it documentary about. Val Kilmer's life and career, um, you know, narrated in the first person, uh, though by his son, which we find out early, early in the thing. And I guess Pete, uh, I guess Pete, what do, what do you want to talk about with the well, yeah, with the? I Val? told you, I told. Okay, so first of all, I want to add two things to oh, your summary because please. I think you left out the two most important things Got it. about this movie. One is that it's brilliant, and the other is that it's sad. Yes. So if you expect this to be like JCVD, which I sort of did going in, right, a sort of like meta take on Jean-Claude Van Damme's like history as a martial arts film star and like what it has to do with reality and kind of a critique of like his movie starness that has a sort of camp to it, uh, this movie is not that. Uh, this this is – I mean it does have camp and it is funny, but it is much more – in depth and in particular concerns itself with like loss uh, and also with Val Kilmer losing his voice to throat cancer, right? This is like a big part of the movie that I want to let you know about right up front. It's something that people know about in real life, uh, but you might not know about it because you might not be checking your Val Kilmer Tiger Beat newsletter that you still might be getting after all these years about what's been up with Val Kilmer over the last five years. But he had cancer, right? And he lost his, he literally lost his voice, right? He, he speaks through a hole in his throat. Uh, and he, and it's, it is difficult, uh, both to do and to listen to, uh, but yeah, but the movie is beautiful and the movie is sad. Um, but I think that that's, that's good to know upfront as you're going into it because we're going to talk about spoilers. So if you want to go watch it and come back by all means, but Matt, I wanted to start a conversation today with well, a spoiler alert. Val Kilmer, Val Kilmer is Iceman. Yes, I mean, Val but, Kilmer will get the role of Iceman at Top Gun, and everybody will freeze frame and high five because that means he's finally made it in this business. That is, that is he's achieved. He's that. achieved everything he's ever wanted. Everything in he's this. ever wanted. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, in this in this business. Yeah, the loss, I mean the the theme of loss and also sort of of sacrifice of sort of like mm-hmm. there are two kinds of losses in in this film. Like what the the first one that he talks about is is the loss of his brother. Uh his brother was epileptic and and suffered a, a fit of epilepsy, a seizure. Um in I guess they used to call it a fit, a but technically a seizure uh while swimming and so drowned. Um in this like very sad accident that that uh you know really I, you get the sense that it really marked him you know um as as this like profoundly sad uh event to have happened to him at a at a very young age i think like right as he was right as he was leaving the house or something like it 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 made it seem like it was right on the verge of adulthood and so this this um this terrible uh sort of what's the word not not exactly random not, sort of accidental loss right like yeah. uh incorrect people would use the word tragic in a way that i don't particularly like no it's not well it's very yeah. it's very sad right yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. Not, but tragic means something specific yeah james um, joyce has a whole essay about that involving like a girl being killed by shattering glass not being tragic which if you want to hear james voice critique other people's grief you will go dig that up somewhere but it's probably not how you want to spend your your monday morning yeah uh, the time <laughs> right, exactly. Like the the time to to critique the use of the word tragic in this way is now on this podcast. Yes, it's not yes, when yes. someone is facing a very sad thing <laughs> that's that's going through. It's that, that's yeah. not when Professor Will actually should should no. uh, pop up, you know. Um, yeah. And then uh, get called pretentious and then say, I'm not pretentious. There's no pretense of anything. I am this insufferably pedantic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Um, you, Wario. But but, so this, the the point I'm making, uh, trying to make, attempting to make is that this, this loss marks his passage sort of into adulthood, you know, Mm -hmm. and you get the sense that it's a theme um, you get a sense that it's a theme in his life and that like, you know, uh, these, these characters are kind of marked by these, um, uh, marked by these traumas or marked by these like, uh, very profound, uh, losses, bereavements, um, et cetera. Like he, he connects with them. One obvious one that pops out to me is Batman. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is, uh, it is very sad. And then the other loss, losses he talks about are, um, the losses of sacrifice, you know, self, uh, he, he talks about sort of bailing his dad out of a, of a set of bad real estate deals, uh, and sort of spending everything that he has, you know, uh, in, in service of, you know, what he sees as a kind of filial obligation, um, which, you know, we, reasonable, reasonable people can <laughs> differ about that, but he's like, this is how he sees it. You know, this is how yeah. he, he, uh, framed it for himself at the time or, you know, selling his, his giant, uh, you know, but a bunch of land in New Mexico that he had accumulated, hoping to build some kind of like artist colony or something on it in order to fund his, uh, in order to, to kind of kickstart, self kickstart his Mark Twain, uh, live show. Uh, that he, you know, yeah. that he did. So, like, the, these which, are which, if he had not gotten cancer, would probably have been on Broadway by now. Except it probably would have been canceled due to COVID, right? Yeah. Like that's that's like the timing of when he was developing this show, right? Right. And so yeah. that th- this was like so this whole thing, um, you know, that marked marked by loss in in a way, yeah. That it that it is sad, and I'm sorry that I didn't. I I sort of highlighted the strangeness of it, and not that it's actually very very good. Um, and, and like, uh, profoundly moving in, in a number of places. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I just wanted to make sure that if you only tune in for the first, you know, couple of minutes that we give you at least an accurate high level view of like what it is that we're talking about. Uh, Ned, from here on out, you're on your own. We're going right into the deep end. So Matt, <laughs> there's a particular insight about the human condition that I've been thinking about a lot over the past, say like two years. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, you can stop me if I have, but this movie made me think about it a lot, which is that we live under a double illusion, right? And the illusion, when I say a double illusion, I mean that there are two different uh, cycles that we experience in our lives. And I would speak sort of broadly and generally about, I'd say, people in the age of art as, you know, in the age of uh, mechanical reproduction, right? People in the age of art, in the age of mechanical reproduction, uh, experience these two phenomena a lot. Uh, and they are, one, always seeing new faces, right? There's so many people in the world that it seems like new people kind of come around or you run into them or you hear about them or something happens. Right. And so there's like a whole bunch of new people that you might hear about today or tomorrow. Right. Uh, that you didn't know about before, because there's so many people in the world that you can't even begin to know about all of them. Uh, and then also because we have such far reaching uh, vehicles and channels through which to experience, you know, the perspectives or the uh, stories of other people. Yeah. You know, it seems like there's this sort of wellspring of new people. Right. That you could just go to like this. The, and they say that a lot that space is the final frontier, but the final frontier is like other people. Right. It's mm. like going out into that mass of people and finding new people. And then the other illusion is uh, is youth. Right. Which is like. The cycle of new young people, like new young hot people being brought out by various sorts of, you know, all around the world, media empires and whatnot. And I'm sure even without global media empires, this is probably something you would experience in your own community or a cluster of communities as people kind of grow up and people have kids and you are introducing new people right into your sort of oh, general vicinity. I mean, maybe, right? maybe even not, but they, they are intruding on your, you know, in upon your consciousness and, and your space. I was getting a yes. burger i was waiting you know i was waiting for a takeout burger uh the other day and a gaggle pete a, a gang a, a a coven of teenagers walked by on their way to the shake shack in santa monica <laughs> and uh many of them many of them carrying skateboards pete many of them carrying skateboards <laughs> and i like as a you know as a person who's emerged recently kind of into middle age and i'm taking you know <laughs> like uh my flapping my my middle age butterfly wings you know those first few tentative times i recoiled in horror on the, right on, on the, <laughs> and and then i thought like and and you know they were menacing they were just going about their their business and and messing around uh, like we all oh, used yeah. to do and but i thought i actually thought that you know uh i thought had the thought at that time that like oh youth is an unlimited renewable resource but not for you Yes. You know, not for you. At the level yes. of the species it is, but not for <laughs> not not for any individual. Yeah. So you're getting you're seeing what I'm getting at, right? Which yeah. is that the sort of and then this is a movie that says that it plays a lot with reality and illusion or sort of what's what's artifice and what's true. Uh and I think in there these two things are both to an extent true, but they're also illusions. Whereas the underlying truth you could see the underlying reality that you could see as in opposition to these illusions is that when you're born, there are a whole bunch of people who are born around the same time you're born. There aren't going to be any more, mm. right? Your whole life, there's going to be less, but there's never going to be more people 
who were your contemporaries. Right. Right. And, and, and I, the way I think about this is like everything that happens that you hear about people going to prison, people getting in wars, people getting sick, right. People, people rising and falling and becoming rich and becoming poor and moving. Right. If that all happens to your cohort, like nothing is replacing it. Right. As far as you're concerned. Right. Like, like those are the, those are still the people that you're alongside for most of your life. Right. And uh, and like that's the world you live in is the world created by your cohorts as you go through it. And granted, yes, the young do kind of come in and they take their share, which grows as your shrinks and, and all that. But but by and large. Right. You know, we were born, you know, we're we're significantly younger than Val Kilmer. Right. Mm. We're like like a, a generation younger than Val Kilmer. Yep. But we were born in this sort of world that Val Kilmer was a person in. And just because you didn't watch, you know, the the even if he had never done anything again after Tombstone, that wouldn't mean that he would stop existing. And that seems like a trivial sort of insight, but it felt really powerful to think about when watching this movie that all these people that you've ever run into that have been a particular age that's somewhere within 20 years of yours. Mm. They, they if if they keep going, either they stop. Right. Or they keep on trucking. Mm-hmm. Right. And they keep on going like there's a scene in this movie. Well, this whole sequence in this movie where Val Kilmer acts in his it's a it's a Broadway show. Right. He acts in a Broadway show yep. where he was supposed to have a lead. But then he gets bumped from the lead for Kevin Bacon. Mm. And then he gets bumped from the second lead for Sean Penn. Right. right. And there's a whole thing where it's like he goes to the dressing room and it's young Kevin Bacon and it's young Sean Penn. And there's young Val Kilmer. And Val Kilmer has like the third role and everybody makes fun of him. And he talks about how he becomes the butt of every joke because these other people who are bigger than him kind of came in. And he doesn't do it with spite. He does it with kind of a sense of, you know, sadness, a sense of, I guess, of loss, but of a loss of something that he didn't know that he could have had, I guess. Not really. Um, But the idea that like who is Val Kilmer is a peer of Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn. Right. Right. And that's introduced early on. And, And if you look at the path his life takes Right. It's, it's interesting to think of him as he's always a peer of those people. Right. Like they're they're living their lives, too, and he's living his. Sure. And and I think that there's just this idea that when people's fame rises and falls, that their kind of uh, wholeness as a person deteriorates because you don't see them, you know. Um, and again, this all feels kind of trivial, but. Uh, in the sense of like watching all this recorded footage of Val Kilmer, because of course this is one of those movies, which is like, well, this stuff that's filmed is, is artifice, but this stuff that is the framing device that we're filming, it's also artifice, right? Like uh, it's like, it's like we're making a movie about making a movie about, I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the, uh, I I didn't do a great job of tackling that, but I think you know what I mean, right? Which is that like um, he has all this, Footage that he took when he was younger, which we look at from the perspective of everything that we know about him and his life as it's gone on and everything we don't know, everything that shocks us. Um, but then also the movie itself is a framing device that is packaging up and then sending into the future this part of his life, mm-hmm. uh, which also moves forward. Right. Um, and and uh, there's <laughs> I'll say one more scene before I before I kind of punt on this topic, uh, talk about one more scene, which is the the scene where. He goes to his mom's house after she dies, right? Which is so sad. Yeah. Uh, he goes to his mom's house after he dies. And there's this sequence where he walks around his mom's house and it cuts back and forth between video of him 
walking around his mom's empty house. Well, not empty. It's his mom's house full of her things, right? right? And pictures of him and pictures of the family. All of these, like, visual reflections of light that bounced off people, right? That was experienced in the moment and then has been held as a keepsake for one reason or another. And, And then it cuts back and forth to the footage of her being alive in that house, which is also like light bouncing off of people. Um, and on one hand, there's like a powerful commentary being made there about memory and and what he what is it like to kind of what is how does the amygdala work right? It's like sort of it's almost like metaphysical poetry, right? It's concerned with like the functioning of memory, but it's also very sentimental. Um, but by the way, it's also like a shot for shot remake of RoboCop, mm. right? Like like which I don't think is on purpose, but it's sort of like. Like it can't help but be a movie. Like there's a scene just like the scene in RoboCop where RoboCop walks around his house after his family has left and he starts having flashbacks to what it was like when his family was there and alive. Um, Of course, in RoboCop, it causes him to short circuit in this movie. I guess it sort of does, too. But it's like uh, it's 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 like each moment that we intersect with these people through whatever indirect means is part of their their journey, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that river that flows to the sea and we're on it too. Um, and so just, it just, it's just interesting to, to think that these Val Kilmer stories don't just exist in the moment that they were made. Right. Um, but they sort of like, uh, they travel forward with us. Sure. Uh, I don't know. Um, does that, does that strike you at all? I mean, well, may, I mean, I wonder, I mean, I feel like, I feel like the Sean Penn found footage documentary, Sean, <laughs> right. Would, you know, would have a very different, have a very different, um, take on this, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting from a number of perspectives. One is that like you consider, Actually, you, Pete, and I are a good example because we speak every week, more or less, yeah, yeah, in yeah. order to do this. And so we have this, we have these kind of like moments of intersection where our stories, you know, um, but you, you know, uh, but then I, I, um, uh, go on to the concerns of my week and you go on to the concerns of your week. Right. And then, and these, this kind of like these moments are yeah, strung together. Like they, they tell a story, but they're not. Uh, I don't know. They're, they're not the whole experience, you know, or I guess the experience is different from the story that I, that I is the thing that, that I want to kind of highlight and that like where, where you sit, like which parts of it you, you choose to kind of curate, um, make a big difference because, you know, you see, you, you might hear the podcast, but not, not see, um, you know, Pete engaged in his, uh, you know, uh, uh, everlasting, um, quest to keep the wilderness at bay outside of his house. <laughs> You know, right? Like the, the, the real good, you know, I mean, your, your, uh, your life has become a man versus nature plot, I think. Um, <laughs> and, uh, right. Um, and my, uh, my week long quest to, you know, uh, find the best single origin locally roasted coffee beans and make them for myself, um, <laughs> in my apartment, which is another kind of man versus nature quest. It's true. It's and, true. You know, that, uh, but yeah, that, that, yeah, those, the, the relationship, the, especially of an actor, right? Like, especially if someone who creates these artifacts that are sort of frozen in time, these performances on film that are, that are frozen in time. I guess if you're like the subject of paintings, you know, this might, you might be able to say like, uh, or someone in a very famous photograph or something, you might be able to say this, but like the idea, the idea that, 
you know, the idea that the, the cam, the camera captures something and makes it static, but it's not static. Time is moving through it and time continues moving, you know, after this, uh, after the static thing is, um, you know, after the static thing is captured, right? And like, and you can like return to it and kind of have this almost this illusion of the staticness of the static thing, uh, of, you know, of the kind of the moments of the captured moments. Mm-hmm. And yet like the, the, as, as you say, the story, you know, um, the story moves forward, right? And like, you might be a very, uh, I get the sense that Val, Val Kilmer is a very different person now than he was, you know, when he was capturing, um, some of those things. I actually get the sense that Val Kimmer was a very different person at the time that he was capturing some of those things. Um, than he was assumed to be. I, you know, to my shame, Pete, I had no clue that Val Kilmer went to Juilliard, for example. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he, he was in group 10, uh, of Juilliard. So in the early, in the eighties, I think. Um, what does that mean? Oh, they are the, um, the Juilliard classes, like it's the, the, the acting program there, um, does, uh, like they organize themselves into groups, you know, rather than like the class of, you know, the, the class of 85, the class of 86, the class of 87. So like if, if you go to Juilliard as an actor, I think I, not all of the, not all of the programs are like this, but if you go to, to Juilliard as an actor, um, in, you know, in that community, you're identified by, uh, by what group, um, mm. you know, you were in. So for example, uh, Val Kimmer was in group 10, um, guess he graduated in, in 1981. Uh, the, um, you know, like Patty Lupone was in group one, uh, in the, in the seventies, um, mm-hmm. in that. And like more recently, uh, or Kevin Spacey was in group 12. So think like, think about Kevin Spacey is a contemporary of, of Val Kilmer, you know? Mm. Uh, and Val Kilmer is the one that's difficult to work with. Right. right. <laughs> I, I will say that I don't know whether Val Kilmer has actually done anything bad to anybody because it sure doesn't seem from this documentary that he really has. Did you not? I, I think reading between the lines, he seems like an, an exhausting person to, to be close to. Oh, sure. But he doesn't it's like he's not like going out there and drugging and, and assaulting anybody. Oh, no, no, no. Not, not right. Like, no, no. Yeah. He's just he just has artistic integrity, Pete. That's worse. <laughs> the- and. and- <laughs> I'll tell you this. Um, there's a building in Boston, which I think you're probably familiar with, at least because it's it's very big, which is the Christian Science Center. Right. Which is, it looks mm. like a European capital. Right. It's got a dome. It's got a giant kind of plaza around it, which is very strange because it's in a very dense area of of Boston down by the back bay and the south end. It has these sort of uh, these sort of arced you know, uh, sort of sideways arced column features that remind you a little bit of St. Peter's Basilica. And one of my coworkers one time saw Val Kilmer walk by it, right? Because Val Kilmer is also a prominent Christian scientist, Mm. Uh, or at least he happens to be a Christian scientist and prominent, but it appears that he is not really a prominent Christian scientist uh, because he, of course, did seek proper medical treatment for his uh, his cancer, thank God, right? Um, But I always call that building the Val Kilmer building. Uh And that moment of my coworker seeing him there yeah. like created this idea in me of him as sort of like the Iceman to Tom Cruise's Scientologist uh, like Maverick, uh-huh. where it's like oh he's like the prominent celebrity Christian scientist and Tom Cruise no 
that's not how it is with Val Kilmer, right? He lives out in the desert, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't like go to, you know, as far as we can tell, right? He's not like converting people. I mean, maybe he has a church, right? Um, but I guess like, yeah, he has a church that he goes to. Yeah, the, yeah. in in Malibu, I suppose. But yeah. it's you know, we we actually didn't see saw footage of of everything else, but but um, not footage of him. No, it does. I mean, it doesn't seem like he is all that. Uh, all that difficult, except like he does seem, yeah. it does seem like he is, uh, yeah, it does seem like he is interested. He is interested mostly in like the kind of art that he's interested yeah. in and not necessarily in like getting along in Hollywood, you yeah. know, you and my, myopically argumentative, right? A, a little bit. Yeah. But, but yeah. then also like when, when they were there to, to not bury because I think she was cremated, but to to kind of mark the passing of his mother, you know, and they were there with his like his kids were there. And I think his his maybe they weren't divorced at the time, but like his ex-wife or is it then maybe then they were married. The chronology is a little is a little fuzzy in my head was there like he was shooting everyone with silly string all the time Uh in in the in the the documentary is they're like getting ready to go do this to go do this sad thing and this is i mean this is another version it's like an interpersonal version you know of of what you said before p which is like he's he's get in professionally he would get fixated on arguments and kind of not know when to quit not know when to just like let let things slide and like the you know the kind of the the level i him sort of shooting everyone in his family with this silly string, then being like, it glows in the dark. It's actually very beautiful. You know, is there, is there, there's like this, this artistic purpose to the silly string, even though it's completely inappropriate to the circumstances. That idea of like being completely inappropriate to the circumstances and yet just digging and digging and digging, like kind of going, uh, going into this, um, more and more. I mean, I don't know. It, it became it became a way of like thinking about a feature of of his acting you know mm. that that was not i guess he 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 had a rap for being difficult i i don't know i wasn't like i actually wasn't involved with the the tabloid stuff as much at at that time i i i guess i was aware of him like my as an actor my uh file card on val kilmer had been like teen heartthrob who got weird you know, mm. actually kind of Brando-esque, like, right, like a very good looking, uh, very charismatic, you know, um, dynamic sort of younger person who like got weird uh, Interesting. In, in in old age. And like I associated that with, I don't know, with with some of the like maybe the, the Doors stuff or like maybe some of the artier stuff in his his oeuvre. But, you know, I don't know. I I didn't really have a sense of like, oh, this is the, the he's a guy who's like actually he actually has some artistic aims and they're based on like they're based on serious study of the craft, you know, and they're, they're yeah. like, yeah. And and like, you know, he's probably like a little artier than I would be in a comparable position. You know, but like um, that, that is to say he's a little less uh, concerned with doing stuff that's that's mainstream or like that. That's not where where his his heart is. But it, it was a kind of an, an interesting lens through which to to view his career. He's he was he was not served by being so good looking, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you know, because he talks about how it's hard for him to find character roles 
Well, right. it's like, well, yeah, but you're going out for all the leading man roles. Yeah, exactly. If you or wanted the, to play, yeah. When he talked about Iceman and like, it, he like, the, you know, the, there was nothing there on the page. And so I had to make something up about, you know, Iceman's uh, relationship with his perfectionistic father. And that led to his uh perfectionism and his, you know, what is, what is Kelly McGill's call it? Uh, this is a textbook maneuver. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, that like, and that like he, you know, had in, in his mind, he did all that, all that, uh, Lee Strasberg, all that method acting stuff and probably filled journals and journals with, with the, you know, um, autobiography, the character autobiography of, uh, of the Iceman. I don't know. One of the things he says in the movie is that I wanted to make a movie about acting and then, then he proceeds to make a movie about his life. Right. Is this in, in what sense people? Do you think this is a movie about acting? I think it. You, I think you could definitely see it as about acting. I think. Gosh, we've had so many conversations where I've said it's really about this, and you've reminded me. Well, of course, you know it's about a lot of things. Any particular movie will be about different things to different people watching it at different times because it'll have a lot of stuff in it, and, and the stuff doesn't necessarily always line up all that cleanly. But I think this is a movie about acting because I think. Again, it goes back to the idea that it isn't it isn't fully autobiographical, uh, right? Yeah. It's it's autobiographical in the sense that all the content that is in it was made by Val Kilmer, but then it passes through the lens of the directors who choose what to include, what to exclude, how to edit, how to position everything. Right. And so even the parts that are in person are portrayals of particular moments that are curated. It's like a reality show. Right. It's a reality show documentary, mm-hmm. uh, although I guess all documentaries are kind of reality show documentaries in the sense that the editor has a lot of power as to what to choose to show. Sure. Uh, but th- that felt particularly powerful here because the editor isn't just sifting through uh, live action stuff. They're also sifting through archival stuff. I-, I have the urge to contrast it with the other documentary like this that we've watched for the podcast, which was uh, the Leonard Cohen words of love documentary. Oh, sure. I mean, that's very, that's very interesting, but yeah. Okay. What, in, in what sense, how, how do you find that comparison? Well, well, because the Leonard Cohen words of love documentary was an external voice commenting and telling the story, right. Of Leonard Cohen and his lady friend that he had a sort of passionate thing with when they were younger. And then kind of, he was away from for a very, very long time. And then the whole point of the documentary spoilers is that he sends her a very, very kind letter on her deathbed. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's like, and that's like a really powerful gesture. And that kind of ends the story. Um, Imagine that it showed a first person, like a sort of like right in your face, Right. Handheld camera of Leonard Cohen writing that letter and talking about why that letter was important. Right. Very different than how it's presented. Right. The sort of context of the act is given from the perspective of somebody else looking at a person that they kind of already rarefy as a legend. I guess I guess what I'm talking my way into is that. The the events that are described as they relate to Val Kilmer's life themselves feel like some sort of legend, you know, like the things that happen are the things that kind of happen in novels. Right. He has a life that's full of stuff that happens 
it seems like it would be more likely to happen in a in a movie or a book sure. than in real life. And part of that comes from coming from you know a lot of money, and of course, people who have a lot of money. You know, a lot of stories are about people who have a lot of money, and so the kind of thing of like we lost we lost the entire valley and a bunch of bad real estate deals is not the kind of problem that most people have because most people don't have the entire valley in the first place. Uh, but it is a thing that happens, right? Sure. Um, that sometimes people have a valley and then they lose it. Uh, it's just that it happens a lot more when people are always doing like Chekhov, right? Sure. Well, they, um, yeah, exactly. Like, no, don't sell the cherry orchard. But the the um the well, you you do have to own a cherry orchard first. True. It it helps to to if you're going to have a conflict about selling the cherry orchard, it does help. It's not entirely necessary, but it yeah. does help to own a cherry orchard. But yeah. the um you could do like naked options on cherry orchard. <laughs> but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh god. That's yeah. That's a much less. That, Chekhov tried and discarded that in in yeah. you know in an early. It just it just ends with three hundred thousand butlers all dying because uh, it's just over leveraged the whole transaction. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Lop- <laughs> Lopatkin is a is like a what a futures trader or something that like you know. Um, uh, but he's yeah the the but even like different genres. It's it's funny mm. how there are kind of different genres of novel, right? That that his yeah. life is. You know the the like the sad early death of his brother is is one genre of not that's that's a literary fiction novel you know yeah yeah um whereas you know and using the using the like um using the rubric that you know popular fiction is about uh normal reactions to extraordinary events and literary fiction is about uh extraordinary reactions to normal events right and like um you know the the that literary fiction novel is about how like this uh this like early trauma this early loss caused me to go half a career as a famous actor you know that's yeah. the that's that uh that's that one but then yeah like like i and they're also they're does seem to be kind of a myth-making impulse in in him uh yeah. in in Val Kilmer, right? But I mean, he he talks about the practice of acting in in a couple of ways. And one uh right like one that he's doing he, he's it, there's actually film of an acting class in yes, in the yes. movie and he's i i should don't know the person he's with i gather it's like a famous person who i i probably ought to know about and like shame on me for not but he's saying um i th- i think it's worth unpacking what what happens in this class he's I, when he said this i actually stopped the movie i paused the movie and i talked about it with my wife because i felt like <laughs> without without an experience in an acting class it would be very hard to pick up how weird it is. Yeah. A l- yeah. Uh, right. A little bit. Yeah. That, that yeah. he's saying, um, so he's doing Hamlet's first speech, Hamlet's first, like big, big speech. Um, mm-hmm. after, you know, Claudius comes in, he has this stuff like, uh, well, it, it actually starts with the ghost story. It starts with all the, the sensational stuff and the, they see the ghost, the ghost of old Hamlet walking. And then, um, you know, then like smash cl- cut two, we're inside the castle. Claudius, is sort of consolidating his power. He's talking about how he's he's married the widowed queen, um, and sort of taken over as king. And uh, he has this like very politicking speech. And then and then Hamlet says his his first words. He's he's uh, um, or I I guess not his first words. His first words are a little more than kin and less than kind. Uh, but he he um, 
when when everyone leaves, he does this thing, and it's, it, you know it's one of these things that that acting students do in their classes. He he says, um, "Oh, that this too too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self slaughter." Uh, so, so, you know, he's saying, he's like, he's, you know, sad about his dad. He really can't stand his uncle. Like there's a lot going on. He's, you know, dealing with grief. He's, he's processing a lot. He's processing a lot of stuff, you know, and he's saying that like, uh, I wish I could like, I wish I could melt away or that like it weren't against religious law to kill yourself and I could just kill myself and be done with it, you know, and he's, right. you know, and this is, this is Hamlet speaking, not me, remember, like, so, so this is, this is what he's doing. And so Falcomer is doing this in his, in his acting class, like pretty right. standard, pretty standard stuff. Um, like a lot of actors, he imagines himself playing Hamlet and how great he would be at it. Uh, right. The, you know, and, and the act, the acting teacher stops him. Who, whose name is Peter Cass, by the way. Cass. Yeah. Peter Cass. Okay. Fam- famous acting teacher, I guess. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's not, not someone I've heard of, but maybe, uh, that's that's probably is to my to my shame, um, and and stops him and says, okay, well, like you're portraying this thing that Hamlet is going through. Have you ever have you ever had those thoughts? Like, uh, have have you ever had that, those thoughts? Like, ah, oh, it would be so nice to to end it all. Um, you know, is this something that he's asking? Is this something that you can relate to uh, for your uh, you know personally? Um, and Val Kimmer says, well, no, not really. Like I've never actually thought, uh, never actually thought about, uh, actually killing myself. It's just not, but I, I kind of uh, get what he's going through by analogy a little bit. And Peter Cass, the acting teacher stops him and says, no, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Everyone has had those thoughts at some time or another and like goes on in this in this manner for a minute or two like you've had those thoughts you've thought about uh about ending your life you've thought about killing yourself this is why i say it's never necessary for the actor to use substitution right 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 and uh and like pronounces this with such vehemence and i was i was a little taken aback by it so like what i don't know Pete, what struck you is do you want to explain what substitution is um yeah, or yeah, like yeah. you know and and what what struck you is very weird about this cuz it it is you're totally right it's weird yeah so i mean i'll give you how i read it right uh-huh. which is substitution as i understand it is uh, the phenomenon, well, it, it starts out with the idea of the magic, Ill, magical if in Stanislavski, which we've talked about in the podcast before. Sure. But the idea being that if you have to portray a character that's going through something that's very strange to you, and the example I gave to my wife was, uh, you know, you're a mob boss who is, uh, you know, ratting on the mob to the FBI, uh-huh. right? And it's like, you've never been in the mob, you've never ratted to the FBI, right? Like, you have no frame of reference for any of this stuff. In order to make the emotional reaction that you have and the sort of way you behave and the way that your character appears to the audience to feel authentic, you find some other thing that you did experience, right, that gave you feelings that you feel like are analogous. And then you try to relive that experience in your mind to sort of a to a multitasking degree while you're talking about being the mobster ratting your you know ratting your family out to the fbi so for example oh you know 
I, I had to tell the football coach that my the other players were smoking weed behind the the equipment shed right. because somebody was going to find out and I decided to come forward, right? And it's like, well, it's not the same, but it's similar enough that I can substitute my experience for the experience of the mob boss, right? And then and then the the performance will seem more authentic, right? It'll have a, a, a smacking of emotional authenticity. It'll at least give me a benchmark of like what I'm supposed to do, right? right? Uh, how I'm supposed to say things, how I'm supposed to act. So that's my sense for what substitution is. And my sense for why this is weird is it felt like it was he wasn't just it felt to me like he wasn't just saying, I don't believe you, Val Kilmer, as a guy in your 20s that you haven't thought about killing yourself. He seemed to be speaking more broadly about he felt that every actor, almost by willing it into existence, can have experienced everything that almost like you're approaching the work from the perspective that you've already experienced everything that's happened that could happen. Mm. And, that, and that you don't that you don't rely on the idea that you have a separate set of experiences from your character that you have to kind of swap them. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether that means that you have to enable the experiences that you haven't had, like you actually have to create these memories or whether it's kind of a mind over matter thing where you're supposed to just assume that this is something that you've been through. Um, and that so that that I would be curious as to how you would interpret this teacher. But it seemed to me like almost like the kind of thing that can't possibly be true, but that you wish is true. Uh, or that you will to be true for yourself and your experience that would hypothetically make you a better actor. Uh, like I was Jim Morrison, right? Like <laughs> I, I flew an F-14 mission in li- over Libya, right? Uh, I'll tell you all about it, right? You know, the things Val Kilmer did that he could not possibly, you know, in real life have experienced. You know, I don't think his brothers hang, you know, hanged him, hung him in a cage over the crossroads after a battle where all of the villages in a 10 20, 30 mile radius were all burned by the forces of the evil Queen Bavmorda, right? Like only to be rescued by a by a peck of all people, right? Little Willow Upgood, a sort of no, uh, Pete. Of course little- you have. Of course you've been hung <laughs> they in had that to look cage. Really far and wide to find an actor who had experienced that to cast him as Mad Mardigan, because otherwise it just wouldn't have felt real. And I mean, Ron Howard, to his credit, really pounded the pavement to find uh, find Val Kilmer for that job. It was really interesting that Kevin Pollock had experience as a brownie who was three inches tall and stole babies on uh, <laughs> Owlback. <laughs> Kevin Pollock really has quite a, a resume when you get right down to it. <laughs> Well, as an impressionist, uh, you know, Kevin Pollack as an impressionist, like Kevin Pollack has been Christopher Walken, you know, that's like, I mean, Willow is the most impressive feat of method acting I've ever seen in my life, right? Like every character in that movie actually lived through the events that happened in the movie in real life, up to and including the guy in the troll costume who voluntarily turned himself to stone using a magical acorn several times to prepare for that role. I mean, it was really very profound. (laughs) So anyway, tell me, tell me what I've got right or wrong about this well, from your I don't experience know. I actually don't know. I, I was so kind of gobsmacked by what this guy said that like yeah. I'm not I'm not totally sure how to take it. Now I'll I'll say that what acting is taught in general to young people, right? Yeah. And young people are not really like emotionally mature, you know? And no. so a lot of the time a lot of old people aren't either, but a sure. lot of young yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. well, yeah, you find <laughs> a lot of as as an older actor, you kind of have to be just because like you'll you'll find you'll find yourself hitting professional roadblocks a lot if you don't like come <laughs> if you don't at least come to some sort of accommodation yeah. with your own feelings about things. Whether yeah. that I mean, whether that rises to the level of actual insight or not, I guess is a separate yeah. question. But like, I'm working on that with fatherhood. I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, you gotta gotta come come to some sort of accommodation with there, a lot of there's things. A, there's a great piece of theory I've encountered, which is Dave Matthews did a song with Grover about this, uh-huh. <laughs> where he talks about how he wants to find uh, a word for the feelings that he wants to describe. Like he can't, he's sad, but he doesn't know the word sad, right? So he's like, he has to think about what the word is. Uh, and really, that's the core of emotional maturity right there. It's like, you just investigate yourself, figure out, okay, I want to be a superhero like Grover, but I can't be. And that makes me sad. But I'm happy that Grover's my friend, right? So like, I'm just saying that's kind of what being a professional actor is about. Sort of, well, I, I mean, sort of it does. I mean, you do have to, you do have to do that kind of forensics um, mm-hmm. a lot. And it can kind of get too schematic sometimes as though, like, emotions have a logic, but it's not a logic logic you know, right. it's not, it's, uh, that's why it's sort of hard, hard to follow sometimes. Um, but if you sort of are willing to accept the premise, you can, you can really understand why those people in the white Lotus are so sad, so <laughs> sad about their lives. But the, the, um, you know, uh, acting is taught to, is taught in, in high school and college and in, in graduate school. It's taught to people in their, their teens and twenties and, and people in their teens and twenties don't, don't even have like a, a sort of a working knowledge a lot of the times, like a working relationship with their own feelings, you know, and that, so very often, you know, teaching acting to, to serious students, right? Like this is not something you should do just to a, like a class of high school students who have to be there, but you can kind of push someone to like admit that they've felt something, you know, like it, it, doing if you if you're doing something like if you're doing a scene that involves romance or something like that you know and you know a a completely normal thing to ask the two actors well two who who's who's to say two that's not be normative right like to the actors in a, a scene about romance is to kind of like articulate some things that they find attractive about their their scene partner you know right. and that can be so um it, you know, unless you've been through that a couple of times and, and kind of realize it's sort of no big deal, right? Like that can be so nerve wracking to, mm. to young people who are not like even, you know, uh, uh, aware of them themselves, like, uh, you know, of, of their own attractions or like what they, you know, right. You, you kind of tread into dangerous territory. And so like, I think that, that the acting teacher was a little bit intuiting something that, that struck me as false. And I think if mm. you were to, I, I think if I could like probably connect the dots for, for what he was saying, um, was, uh, what Mr. Cass, what Professor Cass was saying was something along the lines of, uh, you, you say you've never had a dark, you know, a dark thought that rises to the level of like wanting to end it all or just wishing that you were dead or something like that. That feeling of like depression or of, you know, hopelessness or whatever. You, you say that, but you say that because you're ashamed to admit that you have or the thought of it is kind of too threatening to you to admit that you have. So I'm going to like encourage you by saying, of course, uh, of course you have like, you know, because, because we all have, but I actually like, like what? What strike? Do you do you know what I'm saying, Pete? Like I think yeah. that, I think this was a person. Like I think that the the teacher thought the student was imma- the student Val Kilmer was maybe immature and like didn't have the language or the courage for articulating maybe some of those darker thoughts. And um, I I think he was kind of pushing on him in in that respect to kind of get him to to you know uh uh cut the poop and be more honest you know and 
And like, whether that's, that's a, it's a little manipulative. It's not my preferred style of, of, uh, teaching or being taught acting, mm-hmm. but the, um, it, it is something that's, it is something that's out there. But what, what struck me, Pete, like even more than, uh, even more than the teacher was, was Val Kilmer doing this scene, um, doing this scene from, Hamlet and he said well have you ever thought about that you know have you ever thought about ending it all and he's like well you know no not really right and he sounded so honest he sounded so transparent and he sounded like when he was answering he sounded like he was like engaged in like evaluating the question really exploring the answer you know in uh, like in a very like transparent and kind of moment to moment uh, moment to moment way. And I think that that was like, there was something kind of, you know, you, you see why he, he was a famous actor that a lot of people wanted to watch in a lot of movies. Like the, the, you know, that, that's, that's really riveting to watch someone actually go through something. And, and to me, the teacher kind of missed that. Like, yeah. you know, was like committed to this principle of like, no, you gotta, you gotta push these kids to kind of accept, uh, even the parts of themselves that they're, they're scared about. Um, but, and, and in the name of that principle, like miss that, like actually something kind of cool, you know, something kind of amazing was, was, uh, going on in front of him. Anyway, I, I don't mean to, to belabor this one, one part in the movie, but you, you did get to see a sense of like him in acting class, him in acting training. And like, and like a lot of things were, uh, a lot of things were as as you would see them, right? Like teacher front row, center seat, uh, the students, you know, kind of various degrees of bored looking in a horseshoe around, you know, one person saying standing in the middle and and um, doing the uh, doing some sort of exercise or 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 something like this. Anyway, what I just on this connection of acting, I don't know what else uh, what else struck you that that yeah. um, seems worth talking about. So, yeah, so I would say that so there's one level in which it's a movie about acting because it's a movie that challenges the notion of documentary by having a performer doing performative things in that happen to be his real life, but that feel performative in performative scenarios. Mm. Then it's also about the experience of an actor going through the business, going through the industry. You sort of can draw parallels between things he learns along the way and ways that it affects his relationships for, for often for worse but sometimes for the better, right? Uh, and his, his sort of intensity and all that stuff. Then I would also say that there's another degree to which it's about acting, which is that it's um, it's just it's it's there's a sense that that things get stripped away, right? That um, I okay. So so I'll get a, let's get let's get a little brutally honest here, right? <laughs> One of the things in the movie that's hard to deal with is his divorce. Right. Mm, mm-hmm. And, and he, there's, for, I've, I've looked up for any interviews from her perspective, because I don't want to just unquestionably accept his side of things, but like Val Kilmer got involved in a divorce and you got the sense that it was pretty nasty because she served him with divorce papers while he was off filming the Island of Dr. Moreau on location. Right. Mm. So like, in Australia, so, in Australia. So like, you know, don't come home, right? Like, you know, find someplace else to sleep kind of situation, um, which is pretty funny, but also like pretty brutal. But but her account of it is kind of the same as his, which is like, you know, we don't we have kids. We get along now. Right. We broke up then. 
if you have anything you want to say about Val, you know, go ask him. I'm not going to talk about it. But um, but just this idea that when Val Kilmer is going through his divorce, he can't know what's going to happen to him. Mm. Right. So like when Val Kilmer. So like one of the things that struck me about this is, OK, the, the his his what Joanne Whaley is her name, I think. Is that her name? It's she's she's it's actually Sorsha from Willow, which is amazing. <laughs> right. Um, I had no idea that they actually got married, nor that he was sort of borderline stalking her <laughs> in the theater like years earlier. Uh I should look up that name to make sure I get it right. But like she comes back into the movie to bring the kids to his mother's uh, funeral. Right. Um, but the sense of if you imagine you think about him now. Right. And, and his he's going to Comic Con and like maybe his kids are around, but it seems like very solitary. And he kind of doesn't really know too much about where he belongs. And we could talk more about what he feels like about the sort of nostalgia of uh, of being a, a sort of like movie star of the past and, and kind of how that all rates. But, but there's a sense that he can't possibly have known at the time when he was getting divorced, what effect it was going to have on his life in the future. Mm. And namely that he was going to go through cancer by himself. Right. Like granted he has his kids. Right. And, and it seems like he has a good relationship with them. And I think he has a partner, I guess, but it's like, but you guess I don't know. They don't really go into it. He just seems so lonely. And when I think about, you know, couples, a lot of it is like, well, what happens when the chips are down and things are really bad? And that's but that's never what you're doing when you seek out a relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. Like when Val Kilmer is like, oh, she was, a, you know, she was brilliant. And I saw her in the theater, you know, dozens of times. And and uh, and then I met her later and I fell in love and we got a beautiful Hollywood wedding. Right. All this stuff was great. Um, and then later, you know, it just it was just the road was too much. And uh, and then we did we didn't make it. You know, it's all it's all out of different stories and different songs. Right. Different sort of journey songs and and kind of, uh, you know, Bob Seger songs and, and just sort of different kind of like cultural experiences. Um, and they show the clips of Val Kilmer when he was younger and he was on the late night shows kind of talking about his life. And then you see where he regards his life now. Uh, right. And and yeah, you know, this isn't necessarily truer just because it's sadder, but there's this there's there's, I think, something here about we are we are always acting, mm. you know, and, and he's always acting a lot, which is why this is like, <laughs> like that's the thing is like partly it's I think because it's because he's you know, you could you can conjecture that it's because he's coping with a ton of childhood trauma. Right. And and he's like developed all sorts of defenses against uh the sort of deep sadness of his loss of his brother right and uh and that and that in his work he delves into them but that that's not sustainable for him to do outside of his work right something along those lines no would be yeah the i mean i got i think that there's there's a relentless quality to it and it, it is yeah. you know it is like we've sort of uh you you talked about it a little bit professionally like not being able to let an argument go or or kind of like you know persisting it inappropriately like i talked about it personally in his in his life and th these these things are like these things are relentless you know and th the style right the style 
that he works in or like his kind of constant artistic praxis, you know, which it tends to be, I mean, I, you know, now that it's much harder for him to speak, like, I guess there's a lot of visual art practice in his life. And it looked like he is just like constantly creating collages and sort of putting them in, in scrapbooks. And it seems like, you know, going into that, going into that warehouse at the beginning, seeing the, like the, um, the, the, uh, eight millimeter film reels, the video cassettes, the mini DV cassettes, the, you know, what I'm sure are like DVDs at some point and now like a, a digital, uh, some, you know, um, digital storage medium for the for the stuff that comes off the phone or or the you know modern digital cameras right like that that there there is this sort of relentlessness to it and like in the absence of that in the absence of filming everything he's doing all this stuff that that really seemed like a lot of like exacto knifing and like paste up you know collage type of stuff and then like painting on that um like a lot of mixed media a lot of bricolage a lot of you know sort of juxtaposition um type of work but like it looked like it looked like just like scrapbook upon scrapbook upon scrapbook at least in what we saw in the in the documentary right and and it seems like you know uh, right like the words that come to mind in this connection are like driven or haunted or relentless Mm -hmm. right uh and it's not the only way it is by far not the only way to be an artist right like you know oscar wilde said uh, oh i had an exhausting day as a writer uh, this morning i put it in a comma and in the afternoon i took it out again right like <laughs> there's there are other ways than that you know to to be engaged in some sort or another of artistic practice and that's like um you know, that's, that's, uh, this is his way. Right. And there's, there is like a a kind of relentless quality to it that, that, I don't know that that struck me is probably related to all the things that, that, uh, you're describing. Yeah. I mean, when I think about my most powerful experiences performing, you know, and I, again, it's like, I never was, you know, on a very high level in this stuff, but I did, you know, I did improv for a long time in front of paying audiences and, and I did, uh, you know, a lot of theater in high school and college and stuff. And, and I think that, there is a, at least I experienced a very powerful sense of the exploration and fulfillment of myself mm. in, in these other characters. Like that the, there is a feeling of self-discovery you can achieve in playing characters uh, in place. Um, and, and I think it, it comes from, at least in my experience, uh, the, the, the need to reflect on and kind of expand and contract and, and manipulate you know, your emotional faculties to explore parts of yourself that you probably haven't explored in your life, and especially if you're young. And the sense that, you know, that if that, because we had a podcast recently about acting where we kind of tried to problematize the whole idea of it, right? Like really question the sort of Western assumptions about what acting is and what it could be and the different kind of styles that you could use and the things that are credible versus fraudulent and, and the method and all this stuff. Um, but I think the idea of regarding the things that are happening to you that you're encountering and really trying to dig into and expand what your emotional reaction to it is or what it, what it sort of means to you, which I say with a, a great deal of, of uh, sort of inflection because it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, not necessarily like, – 
if you you have to step back and apply your slow thinking and a sort of emotional meditative state and kind of really interrogate, you know, oh, wow, I saw a cool lamppost. What does it mean to me? In a way that sounds absurd, but which is an identifiable experience for somebody who like, does this as a practice, right? It's like it's like yoga. You know, you can stretch pretty far if you do it all day, every day, sure. uh, even in ways that other people would find comical, absurd, or dangerous. Um, but yeah, but like that, that if that I think can be said to be sort of like part of acting, like a non zero, non insignificant chunk of acting is encountering some sort of experience or stimulus or something and clarifying, enlarging, heightening, intensifying, exploring and, and kind of pulling out and putting on display some measure of response to it out of yourself. And, uh, and, and that's also something that we do in our lives to a greater or lesser degree also. Um, if, if only because the, the moments stick out in such a crystalline way sometimes of what we experience and go through, um, they don't, they don't fit together. You know, they, they kind of, they're collages, right? Mm. Like your memory is a collage of intense moments. Um, because that's how the amygdala works, right? Like, again, it sort of feels like metaphysical poetry because there is a cognitive science behind it, but there's also a, a lyrical dimension to it and also kind of a other, other sorts of poetical dimension to it. Well, idea, a, like, because, because yeah. it has to be experienced, right? Like, because yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever the phenomena are, they, they have to be experienced and that, that experience is the thing that you tell yourself stories about. Yeah, yeah. So like, so like, for example, right? I mean, I guess we, we have to talk. We're getting near the end, right? Mm. So is it time to talk about the best scene in the movie? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I guess so. Because uh, <laughs> it- Val Kilmer has a dream. And he, what he doesn't know is that his dream came true, right. right? He doesn't know. His dream is to do a great scene with Marlon Brando, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, I, thought oh. You, I thought you meant that, uh, that a, a, he, he dreams of, of going to heaven and a feminine god welcomes him in a warm embrace. That's true. That's true. That's so also like, he also so, has that dream. But his other yes, dream, that's true. yes, is so to like, do yeah, a great yeah. scene with Marlon Brando on the island of Doctor Moreau, and like yes. he he's so disappointed that this movie turns out to be such a cluster for for a variety of reasons. Yes. Um, you know the sen- yeah. yeah for a variety of reasons it's a cluster. Marlon Brando is more or less checked out artistically, creatively, and physically. He yeah. has his stand-in, right? He does a lot of the scenes, right? Yeah, he has a he has a stand-in. Um, yeah, Marlon's like, and they're like, oh, Marlon's not on set today. He's not on set today. So that that like, um, uh, he but he's like, uh, he gets the island of Doctor Moreau. It's like, oh, my chance to do all of this weird creative stuff that I love with with Marlon Brando, who is a a, a hero of doing weird creative stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Pete, that's not what happens, is it? <laughs> No, so what happens is, of course, because the, the issue is, you know, the production is so far behind and the director, who's an artistic guy, is under so much pressure to produce it that he's constantly getting in arguments. And so Val Kilmer is like getting in arguments with people that seem kind of counterproductive. This is at a time when you get the sense that he's kind of falling apart a little bit mentally and his wife has just served him divorce papers. Uh, and, and this is not a good time for, for Val Kilmer. He's going around with a video camera and he happens upon Marlon Brando in a hammock. Right. And and he says to Marlon Brando, like, you know, what's your earliest childhood memory? Uh-huh. Right. Like, do you have any pre-verbal, do you have any memories of your childhood before you could talk? Right. And he's laughing as he says it a little bit. 
right? But you sure. you could tell that it's a serious question. Yeah. I don't know where that que- is. That a standard question somewhere in some I don't sort know. of acting technique? Yeah, I don't is that know. Like a I mean, James Lipton question, or maybe it's like one of these things that like he was just going around videotaping people and like asking yeah. them things, and so he was right. just kind of like he was doing it as a bit, a little bit. He was be he was being himself, kind of half in jest and all in earnest, you know. Yeah. So like I, I, the, the difference between difficult to work with because he goes around with a video camera asking you about your childhood memories versus difficult to work with because he like drugs you and assaults you and like takes away your livelihood. Right. Like it, time has changed what this kind of weirdness means. I've worked with both kinds of actors, the kind that screws things up in a very material way and the kind that screws things up in a sort of like uh, just sort of esoteric kind of mental spiritual way and uh i would much rather have the latter than the former (laughs) you know don't go around injuring people you know touching them in bad ways just don't do that if you got to be a weirdo that's fine right um but yeah and then marlon but marlon brando's response is great to this question it's like esoteric question which you get the sense comes from this deep sort of place of yearning within val kilmer that's on that is just cracking right this like desire to make great art which he thinks of as even though people love his movies and get a lot out of them. I mean, he calls top secret fluff. I like top secret. I think it's really good. I I enjoy watching it. Right. Like I know it's not what he wanted. Right. But, but that's, it's what he thinks about it. Right. That, that what this is about, not what we think about it. Uh, Which again, it's, that's everyone is watching tombstone thrilled that Val Kilmer is in the audience. Val Kilmer can't bear to watch it. And is like walking alone in the darkness. Right. That's like happening in real life, like in 2018 or whatever that is being filmed. Right. Um, but anyway, Val Kilmer goes to him on the edge of his sort of whole artist's soul breaking in half and asks him about his earliest childhood memory. And like, what does Marlon Brando say? Right. He says, give me a shove. <laughs> Cause he's in a hammock and he yeah, wants to be rocked in the hammock. He's like, rock my hammock. Which is so wonderful. It's such a wonderful scene. It's just a, it's just like a couple of lines, right? It's just like, what's your earliest childhood memory? Give me a shot. Right. Like, and on the page, it just lays there on the page, but it's, it's, you know, it's all in the performance. Yeah. Really, you know? It's like what anything from before you could talk. Like, Give me a hard shove, right? <laughs> and he does. He pushes Marlon Brando so that he swings on his hammock, uh, introducing, I guess, what is now Marlon Brando's final performance in a film that's been released theatrically. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's, it, it's it's pretty amazing. Seized. And he yeah. he just like holds there. Val Kimmer holds his his video camera on Marlon Brando swinging, and the remark that he makes is. This would be a good fade out. And the movie and the documentary, the, 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 you know, the, the directors of this documentary know when they have met their creative equal in Val Kilmer and they obligingly, uh, fade out to nothing. Pete, it might be time for us to fade out yeah. as, it's as acting well. in real life. It's acting and acting. It's on the waterfront. It's Island of Dr. Moreau. It's craziness. Yeah. No, I think we might need to fade to black. We it, don't need to do any better. This is a, yeah, this is, this is a good fit. It, it is a good fade out. And what a, what a tribute to the man to say, that no in fact in fact mr val kilmer sir you did a great uh you did a great scene with marlon brando though not the one that you not the one that you intended to do 
What yeah. a what a, what a profound thing to say about life. Uh, thanks very much for listening to us talk about Val. We, it's it's on Amazon Prime, so if you have that, it's free. Like, I highly recommend. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend. That, There's so that much you we didn't get into that's so great about yeah. this movie. It it is. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so textural. I mean, I'm not sure it's fair to call it a documentary. It certainly is a film with documents and the yeah. <laughs> you know the the like the documentary evidence. The the documents in the film are are like each one of them fascinating and it's in its own right pete thank you for uh for talking it over with me um we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve